The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, Hollywood, media and technology, money and sports. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You can be a big star and monetize that, but you might not be good enough for the NBA or even an overseas pro league. So it behooves you to go to college and stay in college. Miami, San Diego State, Florida Atlantic, frisky first timers invade Final Four. So read a headline in the Wall Street Journal. Could we be entering a brave new era of parody, not just for March Madness, but across all of college sports? After all, you can now get paid as a student athlete. How will this affect the entire ecosystem? From high school to colleges, big, small, and tiny. How about the straight to pro path? Overseas in the minor leagues. And let's not forget the ambitions of car dealerships across the land. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Sean Gregory. He is senior sports correspondent with Time Magazine. Sean is a veteran of March Madness. He was there. Everybody was watching it. A classmate of mine at Princeton when the Tigers magically defeated UCLA in the mid-90s. The headlines were everywhere. David beating Goliath. And now he's covering the era of NIL and parody in college basketball. How are you, sir? Good, Robin. Great to uh, catch up with you. And yeah, it was... uh... It was a long time ago that that happened, and it was fun to see our Tigers make another run this year. What was it like to see so many Cinderella's descend into the Elite Eight and now the Final Four? I mean, University of Miami has never been there before. Certainly FAU. I grew up in Miami. Those are our neighbors north in Boca Raton, San Diego State. And yes, there is that blue blood in Yukon, which is no stranger to March Madness. It, it certainly telegraphs a new era of parody. 100% for sure, Robin. And I know, you know, I think it's great for college basketball. It's great for the fans. You know, it might not be great for the television ratings um, because the Dukes and the Kentuckys do draw eyeballs. But it's really interesting, you know, kind of foreshadowing our discussion a little bit. You know, Charles Barkley said on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, he was talking about the worry about paying players and NIL and the sponsorship money that players can now get and just worried about like 25 college basketball teams are just going to dominate and buy up all the players and this is terrible for the game. Well, he's saying this, and no offense to Charles, I love Charles, but you know, he's saying this in an environment where we have all these first time final four folks and and in this weird way, um as you know from from Miami in particular, the NIL stuff will help I think level the playing field a little bit in college basketball. We could talk about why for sure. Can you define NIL and explain that for our listeners and also the transfer portal? Because I I mean, I'm a huge fan. I love the fact that I you know, disclosure, I love the Miami Hurricanes everything, and I'm elated that they finally broke through. This was a program that had shelved its men's basketball program for the longest time. This is a program that has historically been a 
famous storied football program that got a lot of grief for taking booster money. But now that's kind of okay as long as it's codified and out in the open. And there is this Wall Street Journal headline. You can help unpack this is Miami boosters splashed the cash. And the Hurricanes have two teams in the Elite Eight. The women have since been eliminated, but the men's team has advanced to the Final Four. You could take sponsorship money now under the guise of name, image, and likeness. Can you explain that? Exactly. So name, image, and likeness is sort of a fancy term for third-party sponsorship money. You know, you provide a service to a person, a company, an entity – And you are able to monetize that and get cash from that third party person or entity. Now, what people I think sometimes confuse this is NIL does not mean that the colleges themselves are paying the players. That could be the next evolution as college sports becomes more professionalized and the, and the money keeps flowing in. But as of right now, all it means is if, if you can sign a deal with a car dealership, do a commercial and get some cash. You can do some autographs for um, the local tourist board, whatever. You can sign a deal with Nike. You can sign a deal with Quiznos, some Fortune 500 companies, some brands that that are local or national. So it's, it's kind in the of past, the Olympic, In the past, in your era, was signing up and taking a scholarship at a school, which, by the way, you couldn't take at a school that didn't offer athletic scholarships that offered right. need blind financial aid, but the best you could do was scholarship, room and board and everything. And it was kind of a vow of poverty. And there was this idea that NCAA sports, there was a kind of this bizarre puritanical trade-off where the coaches were making money, the teams, the universities were making money, boosters were throwing it around and every and everybody but the players themselves were partaking until this. Yes, exactly. So when when we were in college in the late nineties, um I, I I joke around that our only NIL uh, was free hoagies from our local uh, famous sandwich shop, sandwich Hoagie place. Haven. Right. Yeah, I mean, that was our NIL. It was probably a little bit illegal, but I, I think the statute of limitations have, have run out. But, you know, yeah, you couldn't take anything based on your athletic ability. You could not get anything extra because you were a football player, basketball player, whatever. And there were stories over the years of, you know, UCLA football players famously being suspended games because somebody left free food on their doorstep. I mean, the NCA was very, very strict that you cannot receive gifts, food, whatever, anything for free. As TV revenues have gone up, there's been this outcry and eventually these legal proceedings that kind of shed light on the fact that that's ridiculous, right? Like, why should the players who, for the most part, that's who you're there to see. Now, on a limited basis, they can share the pie. Again, you know, the revenues going to the schools and the conferences aren't going to the players. It's the sponsors, the third-party people who are interested in the players, interested in the team, and they can hand over some money to the players, but not the schools themselves. And let me illustrate what happens when a super sponsor gets in the mix. From that Wall Street Journal story on the Miami Hurricanes run into the Elite Eight and the Final Four, I'm quoting here, On the men's team, Nigel Pack, he's a star transfer. He's an $800,000 player. Shortly after he transferred from Kansas State, he signed a two-year endorsement deal with John Ruiz. He's a Miami booster. His healthcare company, LifeWallet, that pays him $400,000 annually. He has been Miami's go-to three-point shooter this postseason. His teammate, Isaiah Wong, the Hurricanes' lead scorer in 2022-23, is also making six figures. Upon learning of Pack's exorbitant deal, Wong's agent laid down an ultimatum to Ruiz. 
pay up or watch his client transfer. Wong later said his agent had spoken out of turn and that he did not plan to leave Coral Gables. <laughs> I mean, $400,000 is not NBA money, certainly, but it's also not a vow of poverty. I can't imagine making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year as a, you know, in sponsorship money when I was in college, especially when I was in college with the majority of my tuition and room of board already covered. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken to many athletes over the years who are against NIL because they think it's too much too soon. On the flip side, Isaiah Wong, the Miami players, they have value. And if somebody wants to give them $400,000 while they're in college, yes, they're going to have to grow up faster. They're going to have to do taxes. They're going to have to hire people. It's a lot, but players are choosing to partake in this. And Robin, I think if you or I were offered that cash in college, yeah, I mean, maybe we are you know, our more innocent days would be behind us a little bit. But I don't think either of us would turn that down. I know I know, I would. I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> now explain this. When you have people like Nick Saban, he is the legendary coach, we're flipping the football for a minute of Alabama football. You know, it's a right. dynasty. It's won multiple national championships. He has unbelievable resources, including, I believe, a private plane to yep. go visit recruits and everything. These stats that say, for example, he is the highest paid state employer, one of the highest in Alabama, is kind of a bit of a fallacy because that money is not paid out directly from Alabama. It's ostensibly booster money. There are boosters that are earmarking it and raising it separately. Am I wrong? Yeah. there's there, you know, Listen, he is on the books the highest paid employee in the state of Alabama. The University of Alabama, a public university, is handing that money over. However, to your point, it's not exactly coming out of the taxpayer coffers. Or I think it's not what... taking from students necessarily. This stuff would be raised. It's earmarked directly from boosters of the program or people who want it to keep that elite program, like really yes, big mega yes, fans, it... I imagine. Or in the case of the University of Georgia, the national championships, another great elite public university. Or UVA, which is paying you know, its coach. It won a national championship a couple of years ago. These are state employees. They are state employees, but to your point, the money, the athletic departments run themselves at these big schools. They are money-making entities. The bottom line is the football teams at these huge schools are very profitable entities generating hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, yes, they fund themselves and they fund the salaries of the coaches too. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are discussing uh, the new money sluicing into college athletics with Sean Gregory. He is Time Senior Editor and Senior Sports Correspondent, a veteran of March Madness basketball himself when he played with Princeton in my class in the late 90s. He graduated 25 years ago, and now he's also a venerable writer for Time Magazine, How Time Flies. Explain, please, the transfer portal, because time was, as I understand, if you wanted to transfer, if you weren't happy with your situation on a team, it was prohibitive because you had to sit out a year. It wasn't fluid. It wasn't liquid like you know, if you weren't happy at Princeton, how easy would it have been for you to transfer to Columbia or Yale? It would have been very difficult. Yeah, you had to sit out a year and you had to do things through old fashioned ways of sending tapes and making phone calls. Now, uh, you ask about the transfer portal. It's it's really like uh, any other portal, like a Facebook portal or, a you know, Uber portal, however you want to describe it. You put your name in this thing. And all the schools and coaches are on it and all the players are on it. And you, you put your name into transfer, the interest and in some cases offers come flying in. And it's a fate of existence for coaches right now. I think it's a big reason why 
for example, Jay Wright from Villanova, who's won two national championships in recent years, still a relatively young coach, um, got out like, you know, he didn't want to deal with, um, you know, the free agency recruiting that's come into college sports. Free agency in college. It's not something we had before. And, you know, I mean, the NCAA, again, used to be puritanical about meals. And these small things, I mean, it was they get criticized left and right because of the billions of dollars they're banking every year on the shoulders of these athletes. And, you know, especially you imagine football and hockey where CTE and their other considerations of long term health decline. You as a as a pro bound athlete are also taking a risk that you could take a career ending injury in college to the extent you stick around. But now there is a transfer portal. There is, if you're not happy with your lot, your situation there, you can move around. But to what extent, and this may be if you want to tell us about your debate with your father, who's more old school about this, <laughs> to what is the extent does this whole obstruct academics? I mean, it's not like, is admissions getting in on the transfer portal too and saying, well, if you're going to bring in uh, this guy from Kansas State or Isaiah Wong, we want to see his SATs, we want to see an essay or class recommendations, or is that strictly the province of the athletic director and the coach? I think as far as how involved admissions is, it depends on the school and the academic requirements. I think there there are minimum requirements that the NCAA establishes as far as GPA and things like that. But yeah, for sure, like it's a trade-off. The freedom that comes with transferring and free agency which the coaches have had for years, right? I mean, that's one reason that the transfer portal caught on was people were saying, all right, these highly paid coaches can flip from job to job um, and leave recruited players behind. And in some cases, when recruited players are left behind, the new coach comes in and gets rid of them and just, just doesn't treat them well because they're not, quote unquote, his or her players. So it is disruptive to academics, but let's call it what it is. You know, big time college sports, there are examples where academics still prevails, but there are many examples where there are players who view college basketball as a stepping stone to the pros. In many cases, it works. In many cases, it does not. It's a risk these players are taking if they ignore the educational benefits that are available to them. So it's a personal decision where, you know, it's not great to have a thousand college basketball players looking to move around. But that's kind of the cost of freedom that has come about through the courts and through the court of public opinion for college athletes in these last few years. Can you explain, I mean, are schools and programs and divisions now opt in to both uh, Transfer Portal and NIL? Is this kind of a state by state thing that the Supreme Court weigh in? Yeah, it's a state by they're right. So what's going on in Congress right now is the NCAA and the NCAA schools are are lobbying for federal regulation of NIL and because there are patchwork patchworks of state laws um, that you know that that dictate what kind of deals you can get what kind of restrictions there are they're looking the NCAA and the schools are looking for a federal legislation that kind of governs this now whether they get that seems like a long shot right now there's hearings going on but you know there's also buzz coming out of Congress that you know, they have other things to worry about rather, you know, than, than governing sponsorship deals for college softball players and gymnasts and, and football players. So the Ivy League, for example, does not generally allow transfers. Many of the schools don't allow transfers or, or look, you know, it's very hard to transfer in and out, um, it, you know, transfer in. But, you know, for the most part, most schools seem to be playing the transfer portal game. 
And one group that is impacted by the transfer portal game negatively are high, current high school players because... Yeah, explain that. Because college coaches, when they're looking to replenish rosters, used to look to high school seniors <laughs> to come in and you develop them over four years. Now there are quicker fixes out there. And I've seen it here in New York City, Robin, a lot of very talented basketball players in particular there just aren't scholarships out there in past years. They would have been Division One recruits. And the other thing that, that's affecting that is the COVID extension that the NCAA offered where, you know, many schools and players in 2021 had limited seasons in the Ivy League. There was no season. So they've been granted an extra year of eligibility, which also is stuffing rosters and making harder and harder for younger high school players in this moment to get recruited. Now that's going to phase out starting in the next year or two as far as the COVID extension, but the transfer situation is a tough environment for younger players who want scholarships to get those scholarships. No doubt about that. Now, naturally that brings me to Bronny James Jr. This is LeBron James's son. LeBron James, of course, is the NBA legend, all-time leading scorer. Disclosure, I'm also a huge Lakers fan. He is 38 years old and he's still crushing it, but he came into the league, was it 2003? Straight yes. out of high school, uh, looked at as kind of the league savior and kind of shattered really for, for good that taboo that you could be an elite player and cut to the chase and make a beeline for the NBA. Everybody is looking at his son, Bronny James, who is now a high schooler, and his NIL value is at $7.2 million. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, NIL is benefiting excellent performers on the court and on the field for sure, but also benefiting personalities and names. So if you look at some of the top NIL earners, it says he's the highest valued school athlete in the United States. Yeah, no, no doubt. He's the son of the perhaps greatest basketball player of all time. You know, LeBron did him an NIL favor, I think, by saying he wasn't going to retire until he plays with his son in the NBA. So there's all that um, kind of extra interest in him because of his connection to LeBron James Sr.'s future. So there's tons of interest in him. And he's got a huge social media following, huge name brand recognition, you know, fairly or not. And that's what happens when you're LeBron James's son and you're trying to play, you know, trying to play in the NBA and following your dad's footsteps. Now, you know, if he was not LeBron James Jr., he would not obviously have a $7 million NIL valuation in deals. And it would be way, way less than that. He's a, he's a good player. He's a very, very good player. He's a McDonald's All-American. And he earned his place on that team. He's gotten better and continues to get better. So you don't want to dismiss his value. Now, the other folks who were kind of at the top of the NIL charts are athletes not in revenue sports. It's been great. NIL has been great for female athletes. Talk about the Cavender twins at the University of Miami's yeah, female program. Yeah, the Cavender program, twins. Who are very the, social media savvy, who have been the, out there. And this is what you, you, you took the question kind of out of my mouth is, can this just be marketing for market's sake? You could be a decent or solid player with a great social media profile, but ultimately you are a marketing asset for the NR, NIL players out there and the school. Not so much an athletic catch. You're, you you hit it. You are a marketing asset. The Cavender Twins are very good basketball players. Don't I don't want to take anything away from them. But but I you know I've spoken to them a few times. I think they're pretty honest about. But we also know what we're doing on TikTok, and they and they put themselves out there. They have a huge fan base, and they are so social media savvy. And so you you don't monetize per se your jump shot. You monetize your two 
million, whatever it is, TikTok followers. And that's what brands are paying in for because you'll market their brands on social media and you get money in exchange for that. So um, gymnast, there's a, a gymnast at LSU, Olivia Dunn, who's who's kind of taken the same model, very talented athlete, but it's not a very high revenue sport in the in the college sports landscape. But she herself is a standout and she's a standout on social media. There's a I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head, but there's also a, a track athlete at, at the University of Texas who's at the top of these charts. You know, track isn't long jumpers aren't um, a profit center, <laughs> a profit center. But he's a Ralph Lauren model. And so Ralph Lauren <laughs> is giving him money. He's a charismatic, good looking guy. And, and he's on Instagram and, and, and social media and TikTok. And so he's he's got a following. So now say you're the linebacker at LSU or Miami or Georgia and you're helping bring in revenues to your school, but you're one of 53 football players. You're not, you might not get the same NIL money. It's a free individual sponsorship market, which brings us to the next question is, should schools be allowed to compensate athletes who are, are doing the labor to bring in the revenues? And I think that's where this is going to go, where if you're some of these football players, you're saying, wait a second, you know, we bring in my sweat in the summer. <laughs> It, you know, it, it helps bring in hundreds of millions of dollars to your our school, but I'm not getting any, any any NIL money because I'm one of 53 guys. I'm the lineman. I'm not the quarterback. I'm not the face. I'm not that TikTok savvy, but I'm laboring in a professional environment. Why shouldn't LSU be allowed to pay me if they if they choose? Right now, they're still not, and that's where this I think the movement in college athletics is going next. Where you know, you think NIL is wild, wild west. You can also argue NIL is not enough based on the value that these athletes are providing. And then also, I mean, what is it going to do about making a beeline to the draft? There are some great players who might be undrafted, both in basketball and in football. Certainly, I mean, baseball is a lot. I, I don't know if, if NIL has dominated the college baseball world, but you seem to get a lot of players drafted over there. But there are real actuarial considerations if you're a player, like the opportunity cost of not getting the league minimum in the NBA at the very least, or or I can you know I just think it's just much more rare to see the four year you know freshman to senior college athlete. It is more rare, however, for those borderline prospects, college might be their best time to earn money, you know, as athletes because. You could be a big star at your local school and monetize that, but you might not be good enough for the NBA or even an overseas pro league. So it behooves you to go to college and stay in college. You know, Bronny James is a different situation in a way, but if he went to, if he goes to say Ohio State to play basketball, he's going to get a ton of NAL money at, at Ohio State. And he might, he might not be good enough for the NBA yet. Now, if you went to the other paths to the NBA, there's something called the G League, right? It's kind of their developmental league where you can go there for a year or two before entering the draft. Yeah, like you can't just show up at the old Staples Arena and say, I'd like to play for the Lakers, knock on the door. There's a way a bill becomes a law. <laughs> exactly. When LeBron James was in high school, he can go right from the high school to the pros. Now, the, the NBA and their players collectively bargain to raise the minimum age in which you can go in the draft. Now that might come back down to high school age, but so a Bronny James has to at least spend a year doing something out of high school before he enters the NBA draft. He can go play overseas. He can play in the developmental league where, you know, the top prospects get about a hundred thousand dollars a year. There's something called overtime elite, 
which is a social media company over time, which has now built a basketball facility and training facility where prospects can come in, make about a hundred thousand dollars and change a year, can get NIL or go to college where, you know, if you go to Ohio State, that's a valuable brand that you're associated with. The other brands want to be associated with Ohio State. And so Bronny James could can kind of make that money. So it's more lucrative in some senses to go to college than to go to the minor leagues. It's really changing all the time and it's hard to kind of keep up with at times. There's so much going on, you know, as I mentioned before, there's hearings, there's legislation, there's there's fights. And, and so, you know, to really be into college sports in recent years, it's not just like who's the good freshman coming in. It's like who are the boosters paying the money that can get Miami to the Final Four. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and rate us and tell your auntie, is fulldradio.com. Shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio across the great commonwealth. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Sean Gregory. He is senior sports correspondent at Time Magazine, adjunct professor at Columbia's Journalism School, a veteran of March Madness himself, where he was on that Cinderella-Princeton team in the mid-90s that beat the Goliath. I'm mixing metaphors here, but David versus <laughs> Goliath. When Princeton beat UCLA and Sean and I graduated from the same class, and he brings a very fascinating perspective on money in college sports, which is what we're talking about today. How does this help? I'd like to take the conversation in the few minutes we have left to parody, right? Mm -hmm. Again, the Final Four consists this year of University of Miami, UConn, which has been there before, no stranger to college championships in March Madness, FAU, which has never been there, the FAU Owls. I didn't even realize they were Division I. No offense. And then San Diego State. But what does this say with everything you described with NIL and the transfer portal? What does this portend say for historically black colleges and universities? Bronny has been in that conversation. You've seen Deion Sanders in football talking about the possibilities for these schools that were other, otherwise you know, famished and could never compete with a Clemson or an Alabama. What about taking the skills and equity in an era of transfer portal and boosters out there? Let's say an African-American celebrity booster, somebody wants to throw a lot of sponsorship money at a Howard University or you know, historically black colleges, female basketball program. Can't that immediately catapult you into contention? Yes, for sure. I mean, that, and that's what with the dichotomy and I think what people get wrong about NIL. I mentioned Charles Barkley. Sorry to pick on Charles and he'll come after me. But, um, you know, saying that NIL is going to mean that 25 schools, only the top richest schools are going are gonna, to are gonna pay for all the players. What's wrong about that is there are a lot of players out there that want to play. And there's a lot of money out there that can go to players at different in, in different locations. And to your point, you know, Deion Sanders, you know, is a huge celebrity, um, went to you know, coach at Jackson State and, and made them a, an HBCU power. Now, he's since gone on to Colorado. But there's a model there where if there is investment from boosters, from companies in and an, an incentive to draw top players to, say, a Howard University, um, you know, they it can level the playing field. Because, I mean, yeah, game it out for me. You wrote about Farley Dickinson across the street from Manhattan, yeah. and George Washington Bridge. To a certain extent, they have no business being in the Sweet 16 or, right. or doing all these things. But suppose there's this one Farley Dickinson grad that has an enormous hedge fund across the river 
and wants that to be a perennial Cinderella team, a, a perma Cinderella, if you will. There's nothing stopping you from putting together kind of a bogus endorsement contract for your hedge fund to bring in the most elite college basketball players across the country. Am I wrong? Right? I mean, you saw the model here with the University of Miami. It's not like these players are really doing $400,000 a year of promotion for this booster's company. It's an excuse to, to pay them and to wrest away talent from smaller markets. For sure. You're talking about what are referred to as collectives, the technical term. Explain and that, yes. Yeah, they're end-arounds. They are end-arounds. So, you know, you can't technically, a, a booster can't just give $800,000 to an, a, a prospect to come to, to the school, to entice recruits to but come But a no-show job, I mean, to invoke the Sopranos and the Esplanade. That's really what it is. It's really what it is. I'm not going to deny that, that that term did not pop into my head when, when <laughs> thinking about that. So it's an end-around. Um and it benefits the athletes and it benefits the fan base of the school. And so, yes, does the importance of boosters at each school rise? Of course. Is that a little bit? Uh, yes. I mean, so, you know, players might not be necessarily going to the school for the academics, um, for, for you know, the cultural experience. They're going for the cash. But are, we, the, are we splitting hairs when a lot of these players – are going to stick around for two years anyway, right? If you're a very hot to trot player and you're really, you know, you're pursued, there are constant statistics out there in the kind of the money ball world saying you're projected to go in the first round. And I'm thinking about the football players. You talk about their summer blood, sweat, and tears. There's, there's definite shelf life to your, your brain um, and injury and everything else. And you'd rather be getting paid and, and getting your lifetime earnings especially if you had no intention of sticking around and getting a four-year degree. A hundred percent. And if you aren't going to play in the NFL. So if you're bringing money into your school um, as, a, as a football player and you're taking the health risk, why shouldn't you monetize that? Because you have a very brief shelf life to, um, to be athletically valuable. And, and for many football players, especially um, college football players, those four years are the only, you know, they're the only earning years. There's not like overseas football leagues like there are in basketball where you can go play if you don't make the NFL. So, you know, th there's a huge incentive for those football players to connect with boosters and to demand that they're compensated as workers for the school. And this idea that you can't work and get an education at the same time is a little kind of dicey in my in my view because people do it all the time people work jobs at in college and make money in college while they're while they're studying and so why couldn't football players and basketball players do that too you know get paid fairly from the school and from from boosters and sponsors and and pursue education i mean the the difference is your library job um might be you know 15 hours a week these these football jobs are 40, 50 hours a week. And yeah, the compensation is commensurate in many cases. Is it going to is it going to get pushback from kind of older school people and that if a star athletic recruit is getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, he or she should not take a full athletic scholarship away from someone else that she can afford to pay freight? That's a great point. And I think there will be pushback for that. Um, however, athletic scholarships have been the the compensation model for years and 
this is all the NIL money is on top of that. So it's tough because yeah, like if I, you're a talented athlete, right? You're a talented athlete. You get an athletic scholarship and you get another $200,000 because you're so good. So because of all your talent, you're going to be like, well, maybe I don't need this athletic scholarship. I'm going to just pay 50 grand out of my 200 grand, you know, and give it to somebody else. That's kind of not how the world, the world doesn't work that way. No, unlikely, especially if another school is knocking and that's where, that's where collusion comes in and rules have to come right. in and everything. But I'm, right. I'm wondering if this is going to brew a, a, a splashback or a blowback. Yes. I mean, listen, I, you mentioned my dad earlier and not that he's an educational position of power, but we have this debate all the time. And it's, it's, I've noticed the generational divide where folks who are a little older can't believe and wrap their head around the fact that the athletes are getting paid. It's not college sports. It's supposed to be the love of the game and, and it's the wild, wild west. But what one person's wild, wild west is, is another person's fairness, right? You might think it's the wild, wild west that Isaiah Wong is getting 800, 400, 800 grand. To Isaiah Wong, it's changing his life for the better, presumably. So what's so wrong with Isaiah Wong making money because he's good? You know, I, you know, that this idea that like college athletes shouldn't have money is, is interesting to me. Like how many child actors in the world that we know are doing very, very well as kids because they're in movies, Macaulay Culkin, the Olsen twins. I mean, they were billionaires at 12 years old or right, whatever. Right. And nobody says boo about that. But for some reason, if Isaiah Wong gets $400,000, it's like the sky is falling. And this other, so the NCAA for years tried to say, if players can be paid, whether it's through NIL or the colleges themselves compensating them, the sky's going to collapse. No one's going to want, their main argument against it was that it would hurt the business, that people would stop watching because they couldn't bear the fact that people were, were making money, that, that fans would flock from the seats and turn away from their television sets. I mean, come on, Robin, the last two years, did you see the football national championship game look pretty packed? Did you see the Rose Bowl yeah. and, the, and the Georgia stadiums? Pretty packed. The Final Four is going to be pretty packed in Houston this year. Um, although ticket prices are down, I think a lot of them. Gosh, could school. you imagine if Boca Raton faces Miami in the championship I, I mean, match? It's, it's I like mean it could fl- happen. It's not it, likely, but it, it it's the all Florida bowl, right? Like it's like something in the, the water point. in South Florida, Nova yeah. Southeastern nearby in Fort Lauderdale, one division two. But you know, I'm talking I'm talking shop, I'm talking hometown. Sean Gregory, the prolific senior sports correspondent with Time magazine, adjunct professor at Columbia Journalism School, and a veteran himself of March Madness basketball when he played for Princeton in the late 90s. Sir, thank you so much for finally coming on. Thank you, Robin, for having me in this great discussion about a very important and interesting topic. We can go on for days. Thank you. Full disclosure, (laughs) stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. You can catch me weekly on NPR's Here and Now and MSNBC and holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. If you were just joining us, we were talking to Sean Gregory of Time Magazine. My guest now is Greg Burton of the VCU Center for Sports Leadership. He's a veteran broadcaster, used to be with ESPN Richmond, where I believe I met you at a VCU game or University of Richmond game back in the day. And he was also a broadcaster with CBS 6. How are you, sir? I am great. It is so great to talk to you, Robin. Well, yes, sir. I had you on my mind. And I often say for this show, 
I would love for some of my listeners to be a fly on the wall when I'm having a drink or lunch with someone <laughs> whose opinion I really respect. And I'm fascinated by the parody we are seeing in, I guess, March Madness this year. It just blows my mind that you have teams like San Diego State, University of Miami, my favorite, which has never been to the Final Four, right? Out yes. there at a time of name, image, likeness, and the transfer portal. What are your overall observations? Well, one thing is, I think it's great for the sport. I think some people may debate it's not great for CBS and their TV ratings this weekend. It may not be great for the hotels in Houston that they don't have uh, University of Texas or University of Houston. But I think it's good for the sport because I think it shows that uh, you don't have to be a blue blood. You don't have to be one of the storied programs in the history of college basketball uh, to play on the absolute biggest stage. We have three teams making their first Final Four appearance in a Final Four that hasn't happened since 1970. And Robin, I think you'd be foolish to not overlook the impact of both the transfer portal and NIL, certainly as it pertains to the Miami Hurricanes, which I know you have a certain fondness for. Well, yes, I do. And what's crazy, <laughs> nobody could ever have imagined this scenario is there could be an all South Florida championship if the FAU Owls take on the Miami Hurricanes. It would be Boca Raton versus Miami, <laughs> separated by one hour of I-95, which is kind of unthinkable. I mean, UConn is the blue blood in this. I believe they have five titles. But if you are a truly a free agent, and, and clearly there's been a lot of coverage, especially the Miami Hurricanes, that it used to be taboo, Greg, mm -hmm. to take booster money. In fact, there was a an infamous Sports Illustrated cover, Why Miami Should Drop Football. After the early 90s, the program right. was so full of scandal, and it was on probation, and you know this story program with people on the sidelines, and Luther Campbell, and boosters, and you know it kind of gave us our swag, but now it's actually codified. You actually have a booster out there offering $400,000 a year promotion money. Now, that might not be a lot of money for an NBA player, but for a college junior or senior who is NBA bound, uh, that's a fortune. There's no question. I mean, I think you can look directly to like what Miami has done. Now, let's first make sure that we give all the flowers to Jim Laranega, who is a Hall of Famer, right? He will be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's going to be the second coach to take two different teams to the Final Four. Uh, obviously did it with George Mason in 2006. Uh, so we want to give credit to him. But clearly, they have $800,000 in NIL deals for these players. And so they have a quality of player that can get you into a championship, can get you into a Final Four. And I think that doesn't happen if we don't have sort of a more agreeable transfer portal and certainly the NIL money. It's just a reality. People don't have to like it, but it is a reality of the college basketball and college sports landscape right now. And I don't know if it's sustainable. We, we may get into that, Robin. I'm not sure it's sustainable. I know even the schools here locally in Richmond, like the U of R and VCU, are trying to figure out how they can start to um, secure more NIL money. Because, yes, what was once illegal, paying players straight, handing them a bag of money, is now very much legal. You know, Shaka Smart, the coach of, is it Marquette right now? He had yes. his tour at Texas, but he is still legendary. I mean, there was a bad divorce with VCU, but he took them to the Final Four. Was it in 2011? And yes. They, don't take this the wrong way. VCU is still invoking that Final Four quite a bit. It was a very big deal for Richmond. It was a very big Cinderella story. But the asymmetry of that, I remember immediately after that run, there were whispers that he would get poached by the NBA. He could clearly get poached by a much bigger program like Texas, which was in the, what was it, in the Elite Eight this year. Yes. Um, there's so much more money, Texas traditionally with football, but booster money. 
that asymmetry is still there with coaches. A coach of a great Cinderella program, say from a small college in New Jersey that made the Sweet 16 next year, could easily get plucked by a major ACC or, or, or kind of Big Ten program. But that always has not been the case with players because players would have to wait it out in the transfer portal and there would be a huge disincentive if you have to sit out a season. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, you know, when coaches decide to take jobs, I think they're looking at a couple of different things, right? I mean, they're looking straight up, can we win? Do we have the resources to win? Yes, money's involved and facilities are involved. But I think now as coaches, because this is the time of year, the silly season, as they call it, as coaches all around the country are entertaining other offers, one of the things they're looking at is, is there a solid NIL fund in place? Because that, the reality is that's part of your recruiting strategy now. And listen, I think that players long have been exploited. I think, yes, they have received, obviously, tuition and some benefits. But clearly, college athletics is making millions and, in some cases, billions of dollars. I'm fine. I am perfectly fine with name, image, and likeness and players getting the opportunity to profit off their name, image, and likeness. I think we have quickly gone into a gray area about what is appropriate and what is sort of the, the the letter of the law as it was written. I think part of the problem is is that there isn't a uniform policy. A lot of states immediately rushed to enact their own laws thinking that they were giving the colleges in their state sort of an advantage and they ended up being more restrictive than sort of the overall policy. So it still is very much a work in progress while it's having this massive impact on college athletics across the board. And, and certainly football and men's basketball top, but even women's basketball and sports like gymnastics and golf and tennis and swimming, they're all being impacted. What about women's basketball? I noticed the ones at Miami, for example, getting that NIL money overwhelming. Mm -hmm. The, Cavender, the really, Cavender sisters. Yeah, very photogenic Instagram twins, if you will. Right. That, that, that there was a commentator on a morning edition this morning who talked about it. It's not very easy if you don't come from privilege, if you don't have means, if you're not on Instagram, if you don't have marketing savvy. There seems, again, another asymmetry between men's sports where it's purely talent, purely pedigree, like a Kansas State transfer or something mm -hmm. to the University of Miami who wanted all this money. And another one who said, if I don't get that kind of money, I have my finger on the transfer portal. Hence the lineup you have this year versus. Uh, people who are marketing savvy. I, I, I feel frustrated about that. Yeah, I, we've done a lot of research over at the VCU Center for Sport Leadership. One of my colleagues, Dr. Brendan Dwyer, has definitely done a lot of data analysis. There's really two large groups that are benefiting from NIL. One is the men's athletes, men's student athletes, male student athletes that are playing football or basketball, right? Because that is the most high profile. It's not even in question. The second group are student athletes that already had a really robust uh, social media following and actually have quality content. And the overwhelming majority of the people and student athletes in that second group are female. So whether it's the Cavender sisters, whether it's Caitlin Clark at Iowa, whether it's, you know, Brianna Stewart or Sedona Price or whoever it is, it could be uh, there's a there's an LSU gymnast who obviously is, is making over a million dollars a year. But they wow. already had sort of a, a following and they were able to leverage that following into like true influencer status, which is really what they have. I think it needs to be said those deals are actually few and far between most of the NIL deals that have been because every deal has to be registered with the university where that student athlete is enrolled. Most of them 
or for less than a thousand dollars. And in some cases, Robin, they're just trade for product. We had a bunch of women's soccer players here at VCU and they had NIL deals with a company called Liquid IV, right? It's just like an energy drink kind of thing. You pour it into a glass of water and they had NIL deals. They were not getting any money. They were just getting product. Those are the most common NIL deals, but the ones that get the most attention are the Cavender sisters and the gymnasts at LSU and what the quarterback at Alabama is getting because we're talking six and seven figures. Greg, as you might know, I'm a huge Lakers fan. It's a frustrating season shifting the conversation <laughs> to the NBA briefly, but it brings up LeBron and his unbelievable longevity. He started, I believe, in 2003. He is 38 years old. He's still, when he's not injured, he's he's throwing down crazy triple-double caliber numbers. Um, I mean, he he has missed a step or two, and he's more injury-prone, but it brings back the kind of the the model of going straight from high school to the NBA. This was the boy wonder, the savior, and there have been many in his wake and a handful before him. How does NIL change that calculus? Because on the one hand, if you're super talented, you can just cut to the chase. You don't have to, you know, quote unquote, waste your time at a program for a year to show that you can compete in kind of March madness. A lot of people almost do this kind of obligatory year at Kentucky or year at Duke before they file for the draft. How is this going to affect the kind of the financial calculus? And I'm also thinking from it, Greg, from an injury perspective, I mean, the, the horror situation is that you're a star in high school and you get injured in college and that affects your lifetime earnings as an NBA player. I would say a couple of things. We are seeing NIL affect high school recruiting, but maybe not in the way you thought. With the transfer portal and NIL, we are seeing high-level coaches, Power 5 coaches, recruit as much the transfer portal as they are the top 50 or top 100 players. So what we're actually seeing is, you know, the top, the, the very elite high school prospects, whether it's football or, or basketball, they're still being recruited by all the, you know, usual suspects. But we're seeing sort of like that next tier down, maybe 50 to 100 or the top 150 or even the top 300. They are not seeing maybe as many offers because so many scholarships are being taken up by people that are just moving from one school to another through the transfer portal. It's an easy fix. I mean, case in point, VCU has an amazing player in Ace Baldwin, right? There will be opportunities for Ace Baldwin if he wanted to, to leave VCU and go to Maryland, say, because he's a Baltimore native and could probably make three or four times the NIL money he's making at VCU at Maryland. So Maryland would put just as much effort into recruiting an existing high-level player like an Ace Baldwin than they would maybe the best high school player at Gonzaga or DeMatha. And so that's what we're seeing. Yes, the best players are still being recruited, and there is opportunities for NIL. But it's a very, very strange recruiting strategy now, and it varies from coach to coach, but they're recruiting the portal as much as they're recruiting the top high school athletes. And it's fascinating when you talk about parity. I see a headline, Yale transfer, EJ Jarvis, his name is <laughs> top eight schools for transferability, including Berkeley, Florida, Georgetown, Georgia Tech, Miami, Northwestern, Notre Dame, NVCU. When have you ever seen any sort of transfer <laughs> Between the Ivy League and the Atlantic 10, I mean, this is a real new frontier for players. I mean, Ivy yeah. League players, of course, unlike college football, they are able to compete. Princeton made it to the Sweet 16. Uh, theoretically, they could do it there. But imagine the transfer portal with schools who really never had a shot at getting players like this. Yeah, I, usually there's a connection. So like, I want to say the connection with the Yale kid and uh, VCU is because someone on our staff 
sort of knew that kid as he was being recruited and has the same geographical tie. That's usually it, right? Like there's a bunch of guys on VCU staff. Obviously, I'm closest to them because I work over there, but like that have great Philly ties. If that kid's from Philly, they're going to know about him. That's kind of the angle you play. But yes, there's no question. It stinks for Yale. It stinks for Princeton. Hey, it stinks for VCU when we have a player who decides to transfer to a Power 5 school, right? But it's just the new reality. I mean, there's been, you know, I know, and so I listen to your show all the time. I listen to you every morning on NPR, and I know you're always talking about disruption and innovation in business. We are seeing it at such an unprecedented level at college athletics right now, and it's hard to really figure out where it's going next. But if a kid goes to Princeton or Yale or Hartford and then has an opportunity to play at a Power 5 school, I get why he's going. It stinks for the school who's put a lot of time, effort, and energy into recruiting him and developing him, but it's now that player's prerogative to try to play at the highest level. You know, uh, in closing, in the few minutes I have left with you, Greg, again, like if I were having lunch or something with Greg Burton, I'd want my listeners to hear about this. I'm going to invoke, and this comes in out of left field a bit, Mo Ali Cox, the <laughs> former VCU basketball standout. He was there during your run in the Final Four, correct? Yes, yes. Absolutely. No, no. He was after that. He was after, after us. He that. was 2012-2013. Yes, yes. So not only does he not go to the NBA after being a star VCU basketball player, but he, he ends up in the NFL, and now mm-hmm. he's a tight end for the Indianapolis Colts. How might this, and use your illusion a little bit, how might this affect it? have affected his thinking. And ideally, I'll have him on the show in the future. But I don't understand. You see it happen with baseball because everybody gets drafted into MLB, like right Tom Brady, other players, uh, you know Patrick Mahomes and others. But that's a dime a dozen. But rare, so rarely do you see an NCAA basketball kind of March Madness caliber star go straight to the NFL. And would this have provided more options? Would it have provided more liquidity? Uh, would it have been disruptive to his life, to quote you? Yeah, the short answer is that, you know, he talked to a lot of really smart people. And while he probably would have had an opportunity to play in the NBA or at least try out, they looked at his body type. They looked at his athleticism. They looked at his aptitude. Mo is incredibly smart incredibly smart and also one of the nicest guys. People always want to know, is he a nice person? Yes, he is a super nice person. But they thought he translated better into becoming an NFL tight end. He worked his tail off both from just learning how to play the position to the playbook and ultimately – yeah, there's risk on both sides, but there was less risk actually. Now, the money about the same. He just signed his second contract, so he is now set for life. But I think a lot of it has to do with Mo and his aptitude, his intelligence, and his drive to try to be the absolute best NFL tight end. And it's such an amazing success story. I'm sure he probably will always wonder, could I have done it in the NFL? I mean, in the NBA, but I think he made the right decision and we couldn't be happier for it. He was just at a game about a month ago and people at VCU games are wearing, you know, Colts jerseys in the stands. And he is certainly a fan favorite. And I think a testament to work ethic that he was able to go from college basketball to an NFL tight end. I mean, the cross-branding and cross-pollination possibilities are kind of unreal right now. And I just yes. had to invoke my Ali Cox. You do. Greg Burton of the Center for Sports Leadership, veteran broadcaster. You remember his dulcet voice with ESPN, <laughs> Richmond, and CBS 6. Sir, I love having you in this great town, and you are always welcome to come back on Full Disclosure. Thank you, Rob. Always a pleasure. Full Disclosure. 
Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Not Only This Show Podcast, of course, to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Fulldradio.com. Put that into your transfer portal URL. We are stationed, of course, at WVTF Radio IQ NPR across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. You can message me to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. And catch me weekly on both NPR's Here and Now and MSNBC. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening. Back with you next week. Next week.